Welcome to Lifelines, the radio program and podcast of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Federation. With us today is Dr. Rob Miscalis, whose name you might have heard before. We are delighted to have Dr. Miscalis joining us to the program. Welcome, Dr. Miscalis. Maria, uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's so great to have you on, Doctor, and uh, I think people are going to be amazed and delighted at what you have to say today. So first of all, what made you decide to pursue medicine as a career? Well, Maria, I am the youngest of three children. I have an older brother and sister. Both of them pursued careers in medicine. My sister went into pediatrics, my brother to family medicine, and so I had a chance to Uh, observed them and followed them and really liked what I saw, Uh, enjoyed the idea of working with people, and I would say that they had a significant impact on my decision uh, to pursue medicine. I took a little bit of a different route uh, when I was in college. And so because of the responsibilities I had related to that, I earned a degree in economics. It worked well with playing football, and and also there was never a guarantee of getting accepted to medical school, and so that would provide me with some options outside of medicine. Uh, oh so my, my Jesus, brother and sister went down more of a science and math route, and, and I went down more of a business route, but all three of us landed in the medical world. That's incredible. And what position did you play on the football team? I was a receiver. I was a tight end. Oh. And, and did you do amazing catches? Well, I don't know what your definition of amazing is. I will say that I did make a couple now and then and uh, really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. It gave me a great opportunity uh, to work uh, with others on a team and from a life perspective. It was just a really great experience. I'm sure. And, and who did you play for? I played for the uh, College of uh, William & Mary in uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, a beautiful place in Virginia. Oh, that's terrific. Now, how did you go about becoming Physician General of Pennsylvania? Well, Maria, I think your listeners are going to perhaps recognize uh, um, uh, maybe a pattern uh, as we talk this, this, you know, talk today. I became Physician General not because of any involvement uh, that I ever had in the political world. I really was not involved in, in politics. I simply sent a letter to the governor, at that time Governor Ridge, and based upon the things that I had been doing, the things that I had been observing, I felt that I would make a good candidate to be the physician general and sent a letter along with my resume explaining my interest. That led to a series of interviews and meetings, ultimately a nomination, and then I had to go through Senate confirmation Uh, to finally become a physician general. It was a really interesting experience. Now, why did you make that your goal? Why why did you think you wanted to be physician general? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it it was an endpoint goal. Uh, There were things occurring both within medicine. I was observing things happening in the political world. And based upon my background, my experience, my interest, I felt that I would do a pretty good job of being able to uh, become involved in public speaking, 
Uh, at the time, the administration was taking positions that I felt comfortable with. Remember, when you're part of an administration, uh, while there is some sense of independence, you also have to be a good team member. And I felt very comfortable as we proceeded in the interview process, the folks that I was meeting, uh, the positions that they were taking, and I guess they also felt the same way as they interacted with me, and ultimately it led to a successful nomination and confirmation. Now, I understand that your taking care of life also extended to the ball field. How did you become a team doctor? Well, that's a really interesting story, and I'll give you the short version. We already talked about the fact that I played football in college, and during my residency, I was a, a, a resident in family medicine and practiced family medicine. I was also involved in sports medicine. And back, I guess it was 1986, the Harrisburg Senators were coming back into town, into Harrisburg, after many years of not having a double-A club in, in town. And I called the senator's front office. And I said, uh, my name is Rob Miscalis. I'm a family doctor. I've been involved in sports medicine. I don't know if you have any plans for a team physician this year, but I'd like you to know that I'd be interested in serving in that capacity. And they said, well, we'll take your name and we'll let you know if, if we want to talk to you further. Well, the season had already started and I never heard anything. And I thought, well, I guess they selected someone else to be their team doctor. And then one evening I was working in the office and, uh, the staff came back and they said, Dr. Miscalis, there's a call for you from the Harrisburg Senators. And the long story short is there was someone on the, on the club who had a medical problem. And I guess they still had my name and number somewhere and they called me. So after office hours that evening, I went down to the stadium, took care of the issue. And the uh, trainer looked at me and said, you can now be our team doctor. And I served uh, the team for, I believe it was six years. And it was a, another great experience. Um, was uh, able to get two championship rings during that time. And also uh, we were in Florida uh, down at the big league camp and the minor league camp. So it was, again, just another great experience that came out of making a phone call expressing an interest. Were there any players that stood out to you during that time or, or that you met uh, who were major league or who, who went up to the major leagues? Well, sure. I mean, those who are familiar with the senators and their background uh, would recognize a lot of the names. I, yeah, And many of them did go on uh, to play in the majors. Uh, Moises Alou, I'm thinking of at least one person that uh, at the time we were affiliated with the Astros when the team first came into town, we were affiliated with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, Tommy Prince uh, was a catcher that did go up to the majors. But if you go to a, a game down at uh, the stadium in Harrisburg, they have a list of players that went to the majors, and it's a, it's a long list. And so those folks involved with the Harrisburg Senators are very proud of how many of those players developed and moved on in their careers. So was it like being a family doctor to the team? Explain a little bit what being a team doctor meant. Sure. My role was beyond just managing some issues related to injuries on the players. I typically would go down to the ball field before a game and take care of things that had surfaced since my last visit down there, or they would call me to come down. But also, remember, some of these players are married. Some of them had families. Some of them were not even from the United States. And uh, they had a variety of other medical issues, uh, including their children, um, babies being born, 
And so part of my job was uh, helping to coordinate care for them while they were in Harrisburg with other healthcare providers in the area, both not only for the players, but also for their families. So did you find yourself becoming close to the team members and their families? Well, sure. I mean, anytime you uh, become um, in a situation where you're working closely with a player, listen, even their sports issues, their sports injuries were, were personal to them. This was something that was critical to them. They were looking to advance their career. And if they became injured, some of them just even struggled with stress and anxiety. Remember, they're trying to work their way up to the majors. Uh, we, you become close as they would share their concerns and look at me because I was always very frank and honest with them. Uh, and so, yes, we, we did become close. It's not unlike any other doctor-patient relationship. You also had your own radio show, Ask the Doctor. What was memorable about that experience? Uh, you know, Maria, that was, uh, that was just fun. And th- that was something that actually came out of my involvement with the Harrisburg Senators. Uh, some of your listeners may remember a, a broadcaster in Harrisburg, Paul Baker. Um, Paul Baker, unfortunately, has since passed, but Paul had a daily show, and he at the time had an Ask the Lawyer segment once a week, and I ran into him at the Harrisburg Senators baseball games because he was a big Senators fan. And I remember talking to him one day. I said, hey, Paul, would you be interested in doing an Ask the Doctor segment? And he said, let's give it a try. And so the one memorable thing is, again, how that happened. It happened just out of me inquiring and asking about it. And we did that for quite a few years, so once a week. And it was just a lot of fun having folks uh, from the area call in with uh, medical questions. It was a live talk show. We were, when I think of it now, we were a little bit ahead of our time compared to where we are today with uh, the variety of both radio and television shows related to healthcare issues. So I guess the memorable thing is really how it started once again by just running into Paul and throwing out an idea that became a lot of fun. And were there any particular questions that stick in your mind for Ask the Doctor? Was there any time that you were stumped? Well, sure. And that was not all that uncommon. I used what I had learned, and I also would have some resource books available to me that if I was able to quickly look something up. But if someone asked me a question I just frankly didn't know the answer, uh, I would say, listen, I don't know, but I'll research this, and you listen next week, and we'll get back to you with the answer. And that's what I did. If I uh, couldn't find the answer on my own research, I'd reach out to a colleague or a specialist to get their information. We were careful. We didn't want to provide specific medical advice. It was really information uh, about conditions, about treatments. Ultimately, we always recommended folks work with their personal physicians for their care. But that's how I handled questions that I couldn't answer. You would think that that would be actually a popular concept right now with with the coronavirus and, and all the attention that's being placed on medicine and health. Well, I think so. Uh, 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 Listen, I still get calls with questions about a variety of things, and not only health care, but 
but things like COVID, now we're getting immunizations, uh, the vaccines, questions about the vaccines, questions about masks, just a lot of questions, people trying to get accurate information. And we always try to use validated sources to make sure we were providing the most accurate information. Do you think the sanctity of human life is a question of medicine, of faith, or of both? You know, Maria, when you, when you address the issue of the sanctity of life, uh, I believe it's both an issue of medicine and faith. Medicine you can think of as science, uh, and I think faith really relates to what it is a person believes. We all believe something. I think the issue is upon what uh, do you base your belief. Um, I'm not at all ashamed to say that you know, my beliefs uh, are based on biblical truth. I hold a biblical worldview. I was raised in a Christian family. Uh, I came to Christ and was saved through the ministry of a Sunday school teacher, and I look to Scripture to provide me for guidance on issues that are related not just to the sanctity of life, but just uh, life in in general Um, with regard to medicine you can think of medicine as science and look at all that we've learned about life the beginning of life uh, the duration of life how we can um, allow people to uh, be cured of certain diseases and conditions and so you know my position and i recognize there are a lot of different positions but uh, when you look at scripture and Uh, passages. I mean, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Psalm 139. Life begins at the time of fertilization and continues through the time of that last breath. And these are persons. And I value the sanctity of life highly. It's uh, it's a gift from God. As I said, I hold a biblical worldview, and it's based on Scripture. That's so beautifully said. And I think that uh, I'm always shocked when people try to say that there is nothing in the Bible that speaks to the life issue. Even, even though we can approach the life issue from a secular point of view, and we do that, there's a wealth of material in the Bible about the life issue. I mean, there are so many times you, you hear talk about the life in the womb, and, and I formed you in your mother's womb, and um, even um, St. John the Baptist who uh, leapt in his mother's womb. I I mean, there's just so many references to life, and and our God is a God of life and of love. And and to think that some people uh, believe that there is some kind of religious basis for um, denying life or suppressing life, I just always find that very confusing. Well, I think that you can always take a position and then find various passages to try to defend your position. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I like to do is rather approach Scripture uh, with the objective of discovering what the truth is. And there are processes, you know, hermeneutics and exegesis, uh, protocols to study Scripture and to learn and if you do that with an open mind and you begin to begin to piece things together, you do see that the Bible is very consistent with, with its language. You know, one individual, a ministry uh, that you're, some of your listeners may be familiar with, a gentleman by the name of Greg Laurie, I read some of his devotional materials and came across recently 
uh, the mnemonic for B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving Earth. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good mnemonic. Um, that, and I, again, uh, I don't take credit for that, but if you approach Scripture as an instruction manual for life, uh, at least that's my approach. I recognize there are folks who see it differently, and I'm not going to be argumentative about it. We all have to base our positions on certain things. Um, as I said, a biblical worldview is one position. There are others who may base it on their conscience, base it on how they were raised, based upon on things they, they read. We all have some type of um, a, a faith, and it's really what do we base that faith on? Tremendous. You're listening to Lifelines, recorded by JMJ Radio. I'm your host, Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. With us today is Dr. Robert Mascalis, former Physician General of Pennsylvania and all-around great guy. Now, Dr. Mascalis, there is a push nowadays toward euthanasia of the elderly, people with disabilities, and other fragile individuals. You've actually had success reaching out to people with Alzheimer's and engaging them in music. Tell me more about that. Well, I was fortunate uh, quite a few years ago to uh, work with a gentleman named Howard Lee. Uh, Howard's a gifted musician, and uh, he and I connected. He's a great vocalist, guitar player. Uh, I enjoy playing the saxophone, a little bit of keyboard. I I like to sing and some guitar. And we began to start to play music in various settings. Uh, We played in coffee houses, picnics. We've done church services because we do a lot of gospel music. And some of the places where we have played music have been in assisted living facilities. uh, And those places often have a, a variety of ranges of care, from independent living to individuals who need some intensive care, and also some units that deal with uh, dementia. And I remember vividly uh, one time we played at a facility where they did have a dementia unit, and they brought the folks from that unit out. And we play a variety of music. In fact, our tagline is uh, music that brings back memories. And uh, we play music from days gone by, some of your listeners may recognize uh, Glenn Campbell, Roger Miller, Hank Williams, Frank Sinatra. And for, for the younger uh, folks, you know, I'm sure they remember groups like the Eagles or Jim Croce, John Denver, and even the Beach Boys. And if you think about it, Maria, I suspect that every time a certain song plays and you hear it, it will evoke a memory of a specific place, a specific time, and hopefully it's uh, a good memory. And and getting back to that facility, I remember when we played at that facility, those folks in the dementia unit recognized that music. We even had one of their family members come up afterward and comment on that, how much they appreciated the fact that we were playing music that those folks hadn't heard for a long, long time, and yet it still evoked uh, uh, an emotional response from them. And it gets back to the preciousness of life. we're all different. We all have different abilities. We all have different degrees of skills and abilities. And I'm certainly not going to cast judgment on anyone based upon what they can or cannot do. We're all created by God. We all have life, and that life is precious, and we should do all that we can to preserve and protect that life. 
my father was an amateur songwriter, and so I grew up with a lot of music, especially Hank Williams, as you mentioned. And I've always been fascinated with this whole idea of music therapy and, and the therapeutic impact of music. Um, do you find that there is indeed um, a case where music is medicine? Well, I think it can be. I think that music can affect people in a variety of ways. Some songs will evoke really great memories, and there may be some songs that will evoke memories that are, are not so great. But uh, I think music is a gift that can be used, and for many people, it helps them approach and see life perhaps in a somewhat different perspective, uh, not only evoking memories, but I know for me, uh, I tend to be able to relax and quiet myself a little bit easier uh, when, when I hear music. But at the same time, music is used, as we know, in, in churches uh, for singing praises, and it can be used at celebrations like weddings and birthday parties. So I think music uh, can be used in a variety of ways, and to the extent it helps someone feel better and have a better quality of life, I think it is medicine. Now, delving more into bringing the gift of music into assisted living facilities, describe to me what the experience is like for the listeners. I mean, do you see their eyes light up? Do they tap their feet? Do they clap along? Do they sing along? What happens? Maria, we have had uh, uh, people get up and dance. I recall uh -huh. a woman, I believe she was in her 90s, uh, got up and another gentleman from that facility got up and the two of them danced in, in front of the whole group. We have people sing along. <clears throat> Excuse me. We, we always have an open mic. There's usually at least one person who would love to sing. There's always a performer out there. And so we always welcome folks uh, to come up and and sing along with us, but uh, they clap, they tap, they dance. Uh, it's just, actually, you know, it's more therapy sometimes, I think, for Howard and I. We, <laughs> we often comment on that. It's, it's therapy for us. We get great enjoyment out of seeing people enjoy the, the music, and we just uh, love playing, and we're always looking for opportunities to be able to do that, whether it's in these facilities or in churches. It's just a just a great opportunity for us to, to have therapy for ourselves. And I'm recalling um, a video that I saw on the Internet where there was a woman who had dementia, and she had been a ballet dancer. And when she heard the music to Swan Lake, she started dancing with her arms, and it was the most beautiful thing that, that I had seen on the Internet. It was just astounding. And I think so many times there's so many people in our culture nowadays who think that once you're past a certain age, you're past your prime, and if you have a dementia or some other memory problem, that your life is not worth living. But there can be great moments of beauty at the end of life. Well, n not only that, uh, uh, but when there are people who have disabilities or other problems, uh, I would argue it provides folks who don't have problems to become servants 
and to come alongside those people. So those folks represent opportunities to love and to serve. We often don't know what people are able to comprehend, yet I think it's good to be able to speak with them, to sing and play music for them, uh, the gift of just holding a hand, uh, the warmth of that, the expression of love. Uh, often we focus on the individuals and what they can't do, and I don't think we focus enough on what does that person's condition provide for me as an opportunity to serve them and to express love toward them. If people would like you to speak at their church or have your musical act perform, what should they do? Well, I think the best uh, thing would be for them to contact uh, the Pro-Life Federation. That would be the easiest and most efficient way to um, respond and be able to get back to folks. That's terrific. And we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, Anything that I haven't touched upon that you would like to add? No, I just want to say thank you to you and the Federation for the work that you do. Um, I I realize that this is an issue that continues uh, to require the attention of folks who love life, who want to protect life. As I said, I recognize there are differences of opinions, and I think that it's good for us to be able to express our views and and our opinions and the basis of those views. Um, I simply want folks to understand the position that those on the pro-life side have and the basis for it. I've explained the position from which I come, uh, the basis for that position, and uh, I'm more than happy to be able to express that and let people be aware of uh, the truth as we see it. We have just about a minute left, and I I think that um, we have covered so much ground in this interview, but I I think that what stands out is really your love of life and love of people and your service to people. And it's just remarkable how – one life can touch so many other lives. I mean, you've, you've, well, you've been the team doctor, well, well, you've been the physician <laughs> yeah. general, you've been the musician in the assisted yeah, living yeah. facilities. Well, Maria, you're being very kind, but listen, all of that's a gift from God, please. I, I appreciate that, and, and I say thank you. But please, uh, all of that is the result of a God who loves me, who saved me, uh, who I serve. And the credit goes uh, to to God. I'm just grateful that I've had an opportunity uh, to take advantage of the things that have been put in front of me. And I guess the other thing I would say um, is that encourage people, if there's things on their hearts that they'd like to do, uh, make that phone call. Reach out to those individuals. You never know what, what can occur. When I think back of the radio programs and team physicians, physician general, it all came from just reaching out, and I would encourage people if that's on their heart for them to do that. Thank you so much, Doctor. You've been listening to Lifelines, the radio program and podcast of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation, ranked one of the top 25 pro-life podcasts available now. Thank you for joining us. Stay with us always, and remember there's always a reason to choose life.